bright sun, pure love, unstained beauty, and unfettered peace. And maybe you went somewhere else in your mind as you saw the different images and the different uh, scenes there. But the idea of of peace, the idea of, of rest, Hebrews 3 and 4 talks about the promise of God's rest. In fact, this is the first place in the letter to the Hebrews where the word promise is used. So there is this sort of future anticipation, but there's also a present reality that he talks about. And as he he talks about rest and the promised rest and the reality of rest, there is this Psalm 95 that's woven into what he talks about. As the author of this letter wants to exhort and encourage and warn and prod his readers to persevere in their faith, he uses Psalm 95 as sort of the thread that that holds it all together. Hebrews chapter 3, Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 1, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. That's his exhortation. Verse 6, just as Christ is faithful as a son over God's house, and we are his house, if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. Chapter 3, verse 12. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. So as he's, he's exhorting them, he's, he's encouraging them, he's kind of pushing a little bit, but he's also poking a little bit, he's prodding a little bit, he's, he's finding some weak spots, he's finding some, some places where after a very good start, they have kind of fallen into this slow fade. After a very intense start, after a very faithful start, they have sort of backed off. Some have even left, some have even walked away out of this congregation, these congregations of believers. Chapter 3, verse 1, Jesus, this apostle and high priest whom we confess, well, um, their confession of Jesus was wavering. It was when they were put on the spot, they kind of hedged a little bit. They weren't willing to identify as a follower of Jesus. And so the first part is the story of And the background in Psalm 95 is the story that we read in Psalm 95 of the generation that left Egypt and ended up dying in the wilderness. In particular, there's two incidents when the children of Israel left Egypt. There's one in Exodus chapter 17 and there's one in Numbers chapter 20. And there's a little bit of debate. Is it the same story told twice or is it two different stories that sound very much alike? water from the rock and God's provision, but there's different ways and means that it happened. Nonetheless, the way the story of the Exodus is told in the Old Testament, there is this frame, there are these bookends, and one is at Meribah and one is at Massa. One is at the place of testing and one is at the place of arguing. Or you can reverse it a little bit if you want. Place of arguing and the place of testing. The, the children of Israel, after, after getting out of Egypt and seeing all the signs and the miracles and the wonders that God had done, got so far, and then they said, hey, I, this might not have been a good decision. I think we need to go back. 
Things were getting a little tough. Things were getting a little hard. Yes, they had seen the Egyptians all die in the Red Sea as the walls of the Red Sea collapsed upon them, but after a little while in the wilderness, they weren't sure that was the best place to be. And so in the Old Testament, there's the story of Meribah, and there's the story of Massa, and basically it was the children of Israel failing the test and arguing with God and saying, we want to go back. Whether it was in the first year or whether it was in the 40th year, things haven't changed too much. Not an uncommon cycle for our human nature, is it? Um, an enthusiastic beginning, things sort of fade a little bit, things don't go as well as they did at the beginning, things don't go as we had thought they would go, and then somehow there is some provision, there is some way of getting us through that difficulty, and away we go again. And that's how it was for the children of Israel. Enthusiastic beginning, they grumbled when things got tough, and things were provided for, and then they go on for a while. And so their journey is much like our journey. And it's not just Hebrews chapter 11 that tells the story of faith and the examples of faith. There is this story of the children of Israel in the wilderness that is our story as well. Chapter 3, those verses in verses 12 and 13 talk about the deceitfulness of sin. And And the desire of the apostle as he writes this letter is to encourage one another daily So as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Reminded of Jeremiah chapter 17, where the prophet says, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Now that's not, I don't know if you, sometimes I think we tend to think that that's, well, that must have been before I became a follower of Jesus. That applies to me before I gave my life to Jesus. And I I make statements like that song that says, I want to follow him with all my heart. If we think that way, I think we just deceived ourselves. The Apostle Paul says, I am the chiefest of sinners. He doesn't say, I was the chiefest of sinners, which he would say, but he also says, I am the chiefest of sinners, present tense. Grammar is important. And so the warning that comes from the Apostle as he writes to the followers of Jesus in the first century and as he writes to the followers of Jesus in the 21st century who are having a hard time with confessing Jesus as their Savior and living a life that shows that Jesus is their Savior, he says, be careful that you are not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And then we come along and say, well, I think I, I, think I know what my heart's like. I think I know. <laughs> really? Do I? Do I know what's in my heart? Do I, do I know what I, I am really capable of doing? Yes, even as a follower of Jesus. And I go back to Paul and I say, there's something about understanding not just the grace of God that saves me, but my need for the grace of God that continues. When John Calvin wrote his Institutes, his Theology of Christianity, his Institutes of the Christian Religion, his introduction is made up of two topics, two categories, two sections. The first one is knowing God, and the second one is knowing ourselves. So self-knowledge and self-awareness is not a uh, psychobabble, late 20th century, 21st century thing. Self-knowledge is extremely important. Self-awareness is extremely important. We all have blind spots. We all have things we don't see in our lives. We all have them. 
And then the question comes, how do you and I measure the state that we are in, spiritually, morally, relationally? How do we measure that? And how do we, how do we listen? Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13, encourage one another daily. And encourage has that two-prong approach. In the word encourage is both a comforting, consoling thing, and it's a prodding and pushing thing. The apostle is doing the ironing, sharpening iron thing here. He's, do, he's doing the thing that helps the followers of Jesus stay sharp. This is iron sharpening iron, which isn't always pleasant, which isn't always easy. But encouraging one another daily, there is some interaction with the body of believers where they're willing, they're willing to, to receive that kind of response. How do you measure the state you're in spiritually, morally, and relationally? Or are you like the proverbial teenager who does something risky and says, that'll never happen to me? And warnings are not unusual around the Lord's Supper. Warnings are not unusual around the communion table. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says to the Corinthian believers, he says, uh, examine yourselves and so eat and drink from the cup. He talks about the importance of judging themselves. And he says your failure to do that is the reason many are weak and sick and some of you are dead. 1 Corinthians 11. So warnings around communion are important. And not just the warning, but he, uh, he says examine yourself and eat. I grew up in a tradition where, and I don't know where it came from, but basically it was when we were told to examine ourselves, there were a number of people around me who would take that quiet moment in the communion service and then they wouldn't take the bread or they wouldn't drink from the cup. And I sort of fell into that pattern until I realized Paul says, examine yourself and so eat. You see, if all of a sudden before we eat the bread, <coughs> and drink the cup, we discover we're unworthy, <laughs> all the more reason to eat the bread and drink the cup, because that's the point. Jesus is worthy, and I'm not. And so we sing, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I don't think that's a bad thing to sing for the rest of my life as a follower of Jesus. And so Paul says, examine yourself. And if you discover some things that aren't too pleasant to you, and maybe not too pleasant to God, that doesn't mean don't eat. Acknowledge those things, recognize those things, and recommit yourself, rededicate yourself to go a different way from those things. But Paul says, the Bible says, examine yourselves and so eat. So there's the warning, the warning side of it here regarding the rest and the promise and the idea of today. But there is also an idea that the Lord's Supper is a forward-looking experience. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, do this in remembrance, Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me till I come. And Hebrews has much to say about our future. He talks about better and lasting possessions. He talks about an unshakable kingdom, an abiding city whose architect and builder is God. This invisible, this unseen world that is beyond the material world, the physical world, the visible world, the world that God inhabits the unseen realm, beyond the furthest expanses of the universe. Hebrews has much to say about our future. And so I read from chapter 4, with this idea of the word promise, 
First time it's used in the letter to the Hebrews. It's used 15 more times, but this is the first time it's used. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1. God's promise of entering his rest still stands. Hebrews has much to say about our future. It's a promised rest. It's God's rest. It's the seventh-day rest. It's the Sabbath rest. In the Sunday school classes a couple weeks ago, they spent a whole session talking about Sabbath rest and the implications of that. So there's God's rest. There's also the reference here to the the rest that came with Joshua when the, the children of Israel entered the promised land. The whole idea of the promised land, the whole idea of the land of Canaan goes back to the very beginning when God said to Abraham, go to a place I will show you. And then throughout their departure from Egypt, there's this promise of I'm taking you to the place that I will show you. And that's the promised land. That's the rest. But as we discovered when we were studying Joshua and when we, back in June and July, we're, we're looking at sort of the children of Israel entering this promised land, entering God's rest, we realized that this was a generation, a second generation, a whole generation, had fallen in the wilderness. The whole generation was not able to enter. The generation that entered with Joshua, Joshua and Caleb were the only two representatives of that generation that left Egypt and saw all the wonderful miracles that God had done. What happened? Who was God angry with? Was he angry with the Canaanites? Was he angry with the, the, um, the pagans and their child sacrifice? Yes, he was, but the, the story of the, ex, of the wilderness is a story of God's anger with his own people, with his children. And that's why I read from the New Living Translation because New Living Translation puts it this way. It's, it's kind of some harsh words. God's promise of entering his place of rest still stands, so we ought to tremble with fear. Some of the other translations say, be careful. Parents, when you say to your kids, be careful tonight when you go out, how well does that register? How well did it register with you when your parents said that? Be careful. The word is fear. Uh, King James Version has it. The New American Standard Bible has it. That's the, that's the version of the Bible I used when I, I started studying the word in more depth. It talks about fear. The New Living Translation uses the word fear. It even says more so. It says, so we ought to tremble with fear. No, that's not the side of God we like to talk about and the side of our response to God that we like to talk about, but when there's danger, when there's something that we need to be warned about, <clears throat> the recognition that we need to fear. Lest any of us be found to have fallen short. Most of us know the Romans 3.23 fall short. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I think there's a tendency to say, well, once I'm in, once I've sort of made that step, falling short isn't a problem. Well, yes, it's a problem. Not falling short of the glory of God, but falling short of where God wants me to be. I want to be where God wants me to be. So this warning, this exhortation, we ought to tremble with fear lest we fall short. 
But verse 3 says it's also a rest, not only that we anticipate, but it's a rest that we, we enter now. For we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them because those who heard it did not combine it with faith. Now we who have believed enter that rest. So it's something we experience now. Bright sun, pure love, unstained beauty, unfettered peace is something we can experience now. It's not just future. When Jesus says, Come unto me, all you who weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's not just talking about down the road. He's talking about right now. And that brings up some of the things we've talked about in Hebrews. Hebrews talks a lot about drawing near, come. It was interesting. I don't know. Maybe it's my, um, some cognitive lapses uh, as I get older. But the idea of draw near and coming All of a sudden I go, wow, how many Christmas songs talk about come? Come. Come and worship, come and worship. You know, that idea of coming, drawing near. It's not some special sort of, it's just being in the presence of Jesus. Come, draw near to me, and I will give you rest. I love the pictures from the Hebrew word shalom. It's the idea of peace. It's the idea of a cessation of hostilities. It's the idea of wholeness. I summarize it with these words. It's human flourishing in God's created order. And as as the video sort of took us back to the garden, peace is human flourishing in God's created order the way God intended it to be. Sin is not the way it's supposed to be. And so this promise of entering his rest still stands. So, so as we, in a few moments, we'll eat the bread and drink the cup and remember the sacrifice of Jesus for us, the promise is there, not just anticipated, but experienced and realized right now. In Psalm 95, God's oath was the basis of the warning. In Jesus, God's oath becomes the basis for a promise. <laughs> it's kind of a neat picture. In the Old Testament, in Psalm 95, God's oath is a basis for a warning. Did you, did you have trouble with how Psalm 95 ended there? You will never enter my rest. Boom, end of story. That's, that's the final verse. There is no chorus. That's it. <laughs> they will never enter my rest. God's oath is the basis of a warning. But as Hebrews permeates by focusing us on who Jesus is and what he has done, God's oath becomes the basis for a promise. Confidence, assurance, his dependability, and that he will keep his word. And I go back to chapter 3. How are we going to respond? How do, how do we sort of put this into practice? How do we, this idea of rest now and rest in the future, but at the same time not falling short, not falling back, not turning away. Encourage, chapter 3, verse 13, encourage one another daily. Encourage one another daily. There's that let us, right? Chapter 4, verse 1. Let us fear that none of you be found to have fall. Let us fear that none of us be found to fall, have fallen short. There's some interaction that needs to happen that, that the apostle is expecting here to encourage one another, to um, yeah, take those, 
those words of discipline with one another, if necessary. See, chapter 4 begins with, let us fear. Chapter 4 ends with, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, verse 14. Let us approach the throne of grace with confidence. So there's this, there's this group thing happening. Do we trust each other enough to do that? You know what usually happens when I preach on something like that? I usually get someone who will come up to me after and tell me what they thought about the sermon or what they thought about the illustration or what they thought about me um, making a little joke about introverts. and I, I don't know, whatever. That's usually how these things go. And that's fine. That's fine. But do we trust each other? And that, do we trust each other enough to speak into each other's lives and to allow the other person to speak into our lives? Do we trust each other enough to have our neighbor hear us say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief? Do we trust each other enough to allow a tear to drop down our cheek before we eat the bread or before we drink the cup? We are in this together. We're going to eat the bread together. We're going to drink the cup together. Look at the end of chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. Not easy words. Um, first, we need the cleansing scalpel. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. We need the cleansing scalpel. The Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. That, to me, is the cleansing scalpel. And sometimes it's the Word of God working directly with us, and other times it's other people. bringing the cleansing work of the Spirit of God into our lives. I say that hesitatingly because, hesitantly, because I think sometimes some people in churches think that's their mantle that they wear to show other people where they're wrong and where they're missing out on God's Word. I don't, I don't think that's how that works. It's all framed and encased in the love of God. But it's there. It's there. The cleansing scalpel. You and I need the cleansing scalpel because I don't see my blind spots. You don't see your blind spots. We need the cleansing scalpel. But then we get the healing balm, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who, as we sang, understands. He understands. He is tempted in every way like as we are, just yet without sin. And notice the apostle throws himself in that mix, right? He's an apostle. He says, just as we are. He has been tempted in every way just as we are. Why do we think my temptations and why do we think my um, brokenness is any different? 
yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. I was reminded of the old saying this week at ordaining council. One beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. James says, James says we all stumble. We all stumble in many ways. The cleansing scalpel. The healing balm. That's what the Lord's Supper is all about. That's what communion is all about. Acknowledging and recognizing the sacrifice Jesus has done for us. That he does understand. He was tempted and tested in every way like we are, yet without sin. He is a merciful and faithful high priest who alone can bring us to God. And if the garden is what it's about, then getting back to God is what we need to be about. So as we're in a few moments going to eat this bread and drink this cup together, it's more than just a ritual. It's more than just a ceremony. It, it points us to the word of life. It points us to the word of God. It points us to the words of Jesus. So as the worship team makes their way back to the platform and as those who are serving communion with me make their way to the front, let's just pause. And I encourage you to examine yourself. And that might even be coming to the recognition that I don't have enough checks and balances. I am left to my own devices to figure out how I'm doing. Or there may be some things that are pretty obvious to you that need to be made right with God. Let's pause before we continue.